Hi, everybody. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, host of Church Life Today. Before we get to today's episode, just a quick word from me to you. We just passed our second anniversary of this show, and I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for listening, and thanks for all the great feedback you've sent our way in the past two years. If you like what you hear in our conversations with pastoral leaders and scholars, please pass our episodes along to others. Everything's available online at RedeemerRadio.com slash churchlife or on SoundCloud at Church Life Today. And if you live in an area where your local Catholic radio station does not carry our show, call your station, send them an email, ask them to take us on. Now let's get to today's show. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Americans do not talk much about abortion. That sounds strange, doesn't it? We seem to hear a lot about abortion in the news, in politics, in relation to the Supreme Court. But in terms of everyday Americans, in their interpersonal conversations, we are actually very quiet about abortion. This is part of what Dr. Tricia Bruce and her team of researchers discovered in their groundbreaking and comprehensive interview study on abortion attitudes in the United States among everyday Americans. The report of their study was released in mid-July 2020 under the title, How Americans Understand Abortion. This study was undertaken in partnership with our McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and you can download a copy of this report for free at mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. Today, Dr. Bruce joins me, Leonard DiLorenzo, for a two-part interview to discuss her report and to offer us some observations and insights about American attitudes towards abortion. This is part one of our interview. Part two will air next week on Redeemer Radio, or if you are listening on our podcast, part two is the very next episode. Dr. Trisha Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Bruce, you and your team of researchers interviewed 217 Americans about their attitudes towards abortion. You conducted a qualitative rather than a strictly quantitative study. So I wanted to begin by asking you why you set out on this project and what you find distinctive about this particular study. Well, when we were surveying the landscape of what's out there in terms of trying to understand what do we know and what do we not know about Americans' attitudes towards abortion. There were a couple surprises that I, as a sociologist, noticed right away. One is that most of what's out there research-wise is strictly quantitative, meaning that you get a fairly simple set of questions that asks people to place themselves in a preset category option. So things like, do you consider yourself to be pro-life or pro-choice or should abortion be legal in this context or another? And we hear hints of some depth behind some of these responses, especially when occasionally surveys will give people the option of choosing it depends or not answering the question. And so we you can see even in some of these national polls that there's something more there that we're not really capturing. And even what we are capturing is not telling the full story. So then we turn to the qualitative literature. This is the kind of work that lets people speak more freely through interviews. And in this, we found that 
it's really limited in terms of who is asked. So for example, you have many studies that focus on activists and those who are really passionate about the cause, whether it's a pro-life cause or pro-choice cause or otherwise, and those have particular voices. Or there are some studies who are especially focused on women who have themselves experienced abortion, or perhaps on particular slices of, of religious groups. But all of this is to say that we were surprised that there was really no study out there that allowed Americans themselves to speak freely about what they think and feel about abortion in a broad cross-section swath of Americans. And so this is part of what motivated us to say, hey, we're talking so much about abortion, but we're not actually listening to or hearing what ordinary Americans have to say on this issue. So you bring up two points there. One is sort of how we talk about abortion or or the questions that we ask. And the second is who we are asking or who we're talking to. So let me follow up on that first point about how we talk about it. Would you say that it's true that because of the kind of sociological research that's done, and I, I suppose this is also mirrored in the public news conversations or debates, that we get what we're looking for, that if we're asking these sort of black and white questions that can be put strictly on a scale that we end up, we have ended up getting more polarized views without any room for dialogue? Does that yeah, sound right? I, I think that's exactly right. I think that some of the most public size news comes out of Supreme Court rulings, for example, and this is framed in a way that is very much one side versus another side. Likewise, the media narratives and even the ways that surveys are constructed are one side versus another side. And I do think that the ways that we frame the conversation impact what we find. Social scientists are certainly culpable in this. You know, the tools that we use are really important, and also the sampling that we use, how we choose people to participate is really important for shaping the story and and getting the story right or not. And I think in this case, we have an instance where some of our tools, our measurement tools, have not been fully capturing the story of of how Americans think and feel about abortion. Hmm. That brought us to one of these two points that we started with, which is how we ask or how we talk about abortion. But the other point you brought up was whom we talk to, who are we asking? And There's a distinction made in your report about activists who tend to speak most and most publicly about abortion-related issues, who are themselves well-versed and very knowledgeable. But then in your study, you were talking to, as you say, everyday Americans. In other words, those who aren't professionals, who aren't activists, who aren't scientists necessarily. And at least as you reported it, there was a difference in both what everyday Americans knew and how they spoke about abortion. So in broad terms, what did you find about everyday Americans and how they would speak about abortion? Yeah, really great point and really great question. And in fact, the question is not only how they speak about abortion, but whether they speak about abortion. Uh And, you know, one of the major things that we learned right away in talking to folks is that most people don't talk about abortion. (laughs) You know, certainly if if you're an an activist, you're out there, this is something you're passionate about. This is on your radar. You're well-versed in the facts. You know, when the Supreme Court rulings are happening, uh, you might participate in in various forms of mobilization. Everyday Americans, ordinary Americans, you know, folks who are your neighbors, your dry cleaners, uh, your doctor, you know, most people are not activists and certainly not for this cause. And that means also that abortion may not be something that comes up for them, perhaps ever or at all. For some of the folks that we interviewed, they told us this is the first time they'd ever had a conversation about abortion with anyone. And for many people, it was a really welcome 
place and an intimate place because we ensured the confidentiality through the reports and gave them a space where they could tell us their stories. And this is where you really see a distinction between how activists talk about the issue and how everyday people talk about it. For everyday people, it's not about politics. It's not about you know, position labels, even. It's not a culture war. It's much more of a personal story. It's something that perhaps happened to them, or it's something that they had a sister who went through, or it's something that came up in conversations when they were struggling with a miscarriage. Or, you know, so what we heard and what we saw in front of us through these interviews were real people talking about their lived and personal experiences and how abortion is something that for them raises these different kinds of, of questions and concerns in ways that are much less contested and politicized than what we might see in our social media feed, for example. The way that you, especially the way that you phrase that, for a lot of your interviewees, this was the first time that anyone has ever had a conversation with them about abortion. It reminds me, this is just coming to mind, it reminds me of the very beginning of the National Study on Youth and Religion by Christian Smith, also a sociologist of religion, where the teenagers that he and his researchers were talking to about their faith lives, they said, many of them, this is the first time anybody's ever asked me about my faith life. So to me, at least, there's a similarity here in that we're silent about, on the one hand, what we're not asked about, but we're also, it seems, less confident or competent in our speech about it. Did you find any of that to be the case in the interviewees that they were, I don't know, are they looking for ways to be able to speak about abortion and life issues surrounding it? I do think that there is a a craving or even an urgency for um, real conversation, <laughs> real conversation, one that uh, the kind of conversation in which listening is elevated above, you know, platforming on particular positions, a, a conversation in which people don't feel judged and stigmatized before anything even comes out of their mouth. I mean, I will say we had folks, I had one interview, for example, before we even began, before the recording came on, this woman, she knew what the topic was. And she said, I just want to make sure that you're not going to try to change my mind or judge me or critique me for what I have to say. And she, mm. you could tell there was this fear that came from experience. Um, and in fact, many people shared that even if this is a topic they wanted to talk about, in times that they had tried, it merely devolved into name calling or discomfort. And then I think you layer onto that also, again, this personal connection, and here linking also to experiences in church and through religion, whereby people perhaps themselves or knew someone personally who had faced an un planned pregnancy or had an abortion and felt as though they were virtually ostracized from the church and didn't feel like there was a place where they could raise this. So I think that it's this combination of, you know, perhaps the lost art of conversation overall, but in particular with abortion, there is a lived experience by many that it, it is a toxic topic and is treated as something that is difficult to engage in meaningful conversation. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with sociologist of religion, Dr. Tricia Bruce, about her recently published report on how Americans understand abortion. You can download and read a free copy of her report at mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. Let me give our listeners a little sample and give you a chance to talk about some of the complexities of the labels that come along 
um, or the limitations, let's say, of the labels that come along when we hear about abortion, because we immediately think pro-life, pro-choice. But at the beginning of part one of your report, you describe four people whose attitudes about abortion are substantially similar or even identical, perhaps. Generally speaking, they are all morally opposed to abortion, but they do not think that abortion should be illegal. And then at the end of this this small section, they describe themselves in different ways. Two describe themselves as pro-life, one describes himself as pro-choice, and one ends up saying she's both. So what did you find about the value and the limitations of the customary labels of pro-life and pro-choice? This is a real challenge because when we think about social movements and social change and the and the efforts to encapsulate and articulate desires for certain social goods, we want to put labels on them because it's both convenient and strategic, right? It's a way of getting across a message. But I think in the case of these kinds of abortion labels, I'm thinking especially of, of labels like pro-choice and, and pro-life, these are ones that have been used for some time, but also have been almost torn apart in such ways that it makes it very difficult to understand what their parameters are anymore. And I think for many people, whether or not they take on that label themselves, they don't see it as encapsulating a clear line around really what it is or or who it is. We actually introduced in the course of the interviews that we did a question that gave people a, a scale. So in the course of the conversation, we said, well, if there were a scale where one was the most pro-choice and 10 was the most pro-life, in fact, the majority of our interviewees put themselves somewhere in between. Um, and, and I think that this shows that it's not that people don't hold passionate and sometimes even absolute views about abortion, but it also means that the language and the labels that we use sometimes become exclusive to other ideas and are even seen as hypocritical. So someone who would take on a label of pro-choice might take great offense that they are seen as not valuing life. Or someone who, who accepts or critiques even a label of pro-life also wants to elevate a woman's agency within the process of thinking through abortion. And so I think sometimes labels, in short, become convenient markers, but are in fact wholly inaccurate to how people think about abortion and they define camps in mutually exclusive ways when that's not actually what the American population looks like. I think in the popular imagination, it might be fair to say that when we think of those labels, pro-life and pro-choice, we imagine it's 50-50 or something along those lines. There's a a stark uh, distinction and there's one monolith on one side and the other on the other side. But to the scale that you were mentioning, I think I remember from the report, it was something like one-sixth put themselves on one end as pro-choice, one-sixth put themselves on the other end as pro-life. And to your point, the majority, it was something like two-thirds, are on the spectrum in the middle. So maybe a, a helpful place to start in thinking about conversations between people, more personal conversations, is to start with what people understand about themselves. And so I was wondering if if you had any insights into what people who would identify more as pro-life understand or perceive about that label for themselves? What's included in that? Or what are the markers for them about that that label? So part of what we heard from folks who themselves would take on such a label as pro-life or, or whose beliefs and attitudes would align as such include ones that really are not just exclusive to abortion. You know, we heard that language about valuing 
of course, you know, this is a Catholic crowd, right? So valuing life and human dignity, valuing personhood, valuing life from conception to death, something that goes beyond just this single moment of a decision that relates to abortion. So we had, and here's here's where our Catholic interviewees, of course, really come in, and, and likewise with some of our evangelical Protestant interviewees who use similar kinds of language, but but then it becomes a conversation about not just what happens at conception or birth or in between, but then what happens afterwards. So what kinds of support is provided in terms of helping, especially those who may not have the financial means to care for a child? What happens in the context of a single mother raising a child or down the line questions about being able to afford to raise a child or to send a child to school, these kinds of questions. So to say pro-life then is something that, again, conveniently the label might presume and be linked to a particular position vis-a-vis being an opposition to abortion. But the ways that pro-life folks talk about it is a much more expansive and I think inclusive also of agency and thinking about valuing life well beyond just this one decision. Yeah, I find it interesting that you note the sort of Catholic interviewees, not all of your interviewees were Catholic. In fact, you were trying <laughs> intentionally trying to sample, no. you know, the American uh, representation of the American population. But as you're saying here, the sort of language of what it sounds like a consistent ethic of life did come through that sort of education or formation from a Catholic worldview did seem to have some sticking power in the pro-life articulations. Is that, does that sound right? It did. And I, I want to point out a couple of things related to Please. that. One is that there are some interesting differences across Catholics, one in terms of how attached or involved they are with Catholicism. And of course, sociologically, one of the measures, as it were, for this is is mass attendance. So do mm. they go to church? How often do they go to church? And we, we actually asked people even before we began the interview, as we were, we did a pre-screener. So we gathered all their information in terms of demographic, race, religion, religious attendance, political party, these sorts of things. So we, we were able to build a sample that did have that kind of diversity. But yeah, so for Catholics in particular, whether or not they're involved in the church, whether or not they go really matters. Also because Catholic identity and Speaking as someone who thinks a lot about Catholic identity, who has written a lot about Catholics, you know, this is a, a fairly big umbrella. And we heard in our interviewee, among our interviewees, this wide swath of the experience of, of, you know, what does it mean to be Catholic? And then what is the role of official church teaching vis-a-vis lay interpretation of that or agency therein? And the other piece, in addition to mass attendance, that really matters is generation. So among our older Catholics, we heard a number of stories that linked back to the passage of Roe v. Wade and the Catholic Church as a prominent early actor in thinking through this pro-life messaging or trying to understand abortion through the Catholic social teaching and whatnot. And so you heard interviewees, for example, talking about how teachers in their Catholic schools, nuns in their schools, or perhaps a pastor from their local parish was bringing them letters, pre-written letters that they could sign and then send on to their lawmakers, you know, becoming in their youth activists against abortion. And this becoming a real, a, a sticking 
message of socialization for young Catholics who are now older. And, you know, you fast forward a little bit, you get into sort of Gen X, and then you have messages that look more like the more formalized movement, pro-life movement that is embraced by the, the church and, and through messages like kids talking about remembering how they would see videos in their youth group, or this would come up in, in conversations in church. Fast forward even more, and now you have a couple different things happening. The demographics of the church, of course, are changing in terms of race, especially. And then also you have a number of young Catholics who are more loosely tethered to the institutional church. So their mass attendance might be lower, or they may not have a parish home, and they, they may kind of hop around to different churches. And so in this, we hear things like, I remember one uh, Latina Catholic, a young Latina Catholic talking about, oh, yeah, well, the only time I remember abortion coming up at church was when somebody handed me a pamphlet on my way out of mass. And so it comes through in this sort of decades later, it comes in the form of a pamphlet, you know, quite, perhaps quite literally. And so the socialization of young Catholics vis-a-vis the issue of abortion and linking it to conceptions of faith looks, I think, very different than it did for, say, baby boomer Catholics in particular, who have that lived experience of Roe v. Wade. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with sociologist of religion, Dr. Tricia Bruce, about her recently published report on how Americans understand abortion. You can find that report and download it for free at mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. So I've just asked you about uh, how pro people who identify more closely with pro-life, self-identify, understand that label. What about those who more identify as pro-choice? What do they hear in that or do they understand about themselves in that label? The interesting thing about the, the pro-choice label is that you know a lot of what we heard from interviewees was this attempt to distinguish between how people discern what is right for themselves and how people discern what is right for someone else. Um, Now, I'll add as a caveat footnote on that, we conducted this report and write this report as sociologists. So, of course, Mm. you know, different folks, whether you're a theologian or an ethicist or a priest listening, may have a different perspective on it. So this is sort of how we're trying to report how people actually talk about it. And so for those who take on this pro-choice label, a lot of what we hear is even among those who might say, well, I personally would never do it, referring to abortion. Like, I couldn't do that, I wouldn't do that, or whatnot, but I don't want to make that decision for someone else. For others, perhaps there was no moral opposition, or perhaps they just weren't really sure. You know, maybe they'd never thought about the question of, you know, we think this question of when does life begin, this is going to be huge in people's minds. Not necessarily, you know, for hmm. some, it's, they, they don't really know, they're not sure, but they want to let other people make that decision. So there's it's as much about advocacy for agency as it is about sort of outsourcing a decision away from oneself with the perspective that it's not my call to make that decision for someone else. Now, of course, they're on both, you know, across the spectrum, there are different views in terms of how the law is a part of this, you know, whether or not the law becomes a tool to essentially uh, mitigate someone's decision one way or another. So people have different perspectives on this. But for many folks who would take on a label of, of pro-choice, there was this feeling as though, well, you don't know 
what that person is going through. I don't know what that person is going through. And it should be within the realm of their purview to to make a, a decision for themselves. I found a, I was very interested in the section of your report, the part of your report, I think it was part two, that was on wells of meaning. This has to do with basically what people, Americans are drawing from in order to formulate their views, their understanding about abortion and how they feel about it and what, as you were saying, they feel about it for others. Can you tell us a little bit about these shared wells of meaning and how these views and opinions are being formed in in the American psyche? Sure. There were a few of them that we wanted to draw attention to in particular in the report. One of them that became salient right away is this personal thread, meaning the experience of abortion, whether it was themselves. A quarter of our female interviewees disclosed abortion experiences themselves. We had a number of men also talk about having had a partner who had an abortion at some point in the past. And this is a, for some who have had this experience, this is forefront. You know, we, in the, um, in the interview, after we got to know our interviewees, the first question that we asked moving into the particular topic was, what first comes to mind when you hear the word abortion? And for, in particular, for the women who have, have experienced abortion, for some, this was the first thing out of their mouth would say, well, I, I, I think of myself because I had one, or this is my personal experience. And some, you know, would, would go on to tell fully the, the experience of their own. Others, it came out later. And in fact, for some of our interviewees, this was the one and only time that they've ever told anyone that they've had an abortion. And so we, we honor that, that truth and that candor in the way that they share it with us. And we recognize too, and could see how much this really colored the way that they think through their own views, because in every situation or question, they're thinking about themselves, right? Themselves being perhaps in that same situation or similar or otherwise. And then you have a, we had a huge number of interviewees also who had some other personal connection to someone who had had an abortion. So three quarters of our interviewees knew someone personally, whether it was a a sister or a high school classmate or a friend or something. And so one of the wells of meaning then that we we saw being really meaningful was this history. And again, I should say that with this and with with other uh, wells of meaning, there's not a clear line between something happening equals a certain attitude, by which I mean, if someone's had an abortion, we can't easily predict or know what their attitude towards abortion will be. And in fact, the the report kind of goes into some of the complexity there and some of the women, the way that they talk about their own abortions and how then they translate that to what they see abortion as both morally and legally. So it's a, there's not a clear line, but it's still a meaningful one. Um, Some of the other ones that we talk about, we, for many parenthood, or family becomes a, a really big part of the mm-hmm. story. Again, early in the interview, we ask folks what some of their core values are. And for many people, of course, family is high on the list and they'll talk about this. But we heard here stories about miscarriages, about infertility, about facing an unplanned pregnancy oneself, uh, about having a child and seeing the ultrasound for the first time having children or not having children or trying to have children. This is for many Americans, part of the way that they think about decisions vis-a-vis pregnancy and unplanned pregnancies and otherwise. 
thank you for all of that. Dr. Bruce, we clearly have a lot more to talk about. And so um, I'm really grateful you've agreed to stick around for a second part of this interview. Um, this will bring us to a conclusion in our first part. So for our listeners, hope that you'll join us uh, if you're listening on air next week for the second part of this interview. Or if you're picking this up on the podcast, you can just go straight to the next episode. I've been talking to Dr. Tricia Bruce about her newly published report, How Americans Understand Abortion. You can find that report and download it for free at mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. Dr. Bruce, so thanks so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?